0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and we're continuing our series on the book of Habakkuk today, a series entitled God and the Problem of Evil. So let's join Dr. Newfeld as we turn to Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 17 to 19 with a message entitled Always Rejoicing.
1: I'm reading Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be in the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choirmaster with stringed instruments. You know the Bible is filled with hundreds of references to joy. If one looks in a concordance and combines words like joy and joyful and rejoice, rejoicing, glad, gladness, delight, you get 596 references, just four shy of 600. Of course, these passages are not isolated. They're a part in many cases of a wider teaching on this subject. So at the very least, the Bible teaches us on the subject of joy 600 times. I wonder how it is that so many believers miss how joy is an essential part of the Christian life. Consider, for instance, Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you're paying attention while I was reading the last three verses in Habakkuk, you're going to note that first, God is joyful. And second, that he's concerned for our joy. And third, that he motivates us to obedience by promising us joy if we'll obey. If you doubt that God motivates us by promising us joy, listen to these words of Jesus recorded in John 15, verses 10 to 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So God motivates us by promising us joy. Now let me add a fourth item. Not only does God motivate us by promising us joy, He commands us to be joyful. Twice, in Philippians 4 verse 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 16, we are commanded to rejoice always. Philippians 2 verse 18 adds to that, that we should rejoice and be glad, as if one were not enough. And then 1 Peter 4 verse 13 even commands us to rejoice in our trials or in our sufferings, promising us that suffering and joy is not an opposite. And this is what the end of Habakkuk is all about. So we find that first, God is full of joy, and then second, that he's concerned for our joy And third, he motivates us by promising us joy. And fourth, he commands our joy. And five, he even commands it in the midst of suffering. As C.S. Lewis put it so well in his letters to Malcolm, joy is the serious business of heaven. But with all this talk of joy, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that the only source of lasting joy is God himself. That's why Psalm 16 said, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. For so many people, it's their misunderstanding of the source of joy that really messes them up. That's why they're looking for joy in all the wrong places and their joy is never full and they never feel completely joyful. And why is that? They seek joy in earthly things or they have substituted momentary pleasure for eternal joy only because they don't really know what joy is. And here I think C.S. Lewis helps us greatly. He says, What does not satisfy ultimately when we find it was not the thing that we were desiring. You know, behind that quote is the assumption that we're all desperately looking for joy. All that's missing is knowing where it is. Now, think about that. I mean, think of all the things that you once delighted in that don't seem to matter a great deal anymore. I mean, those things may include a car that now is rusting in a wrecker's yard somewhere or a new piece of technology which now no one cares about anymore or even a new girlfriend or boyfriend that you wanted to have. Listen again to what Lewis says. Joy is not a substitute for sex. Sex is very often a substitute for joy. I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. In other words, some of us have never had a real lasting and abiding and enduring joy. Never. Not ever. We've caught a faint whisper of it, like smelling something really great and wondering where that smell came from. And then it's gone. It's all over. You know, and so for many... All we've ever had is a series of finite and passing pleasures which have never satisfied the longing that we've had in ourselves. And consequently, our lives are made up of doing all that we can to avoid suffering because we assume that all suffering is bad and then striving as much as we can to to get the things that bring ease and temporary pleasure. And when we don't get it, we become angry. In fact, the history of the human race indicates that we will kill for temporary pleasure. But in the end, we will never have found the thing that we're earnestly desiring. Now, of course, some of us have given up on joy entirely. We think it must be like Santa Claus. It's a nice story, but it's just not true. It, it doesn't exist. And so we've allowed sorrow and despair to overwhelm our hearts. People will spend a lifetime trying to anesthetize the sadness in their own heart through alcohol and drugs and sex and mindless entertainment, anything that dulls the pain of a joy that was so elusive. You'll have noticed that the book of Habakkuk ends by the prophet declaring that, come what may, the grape harvest failing, the the crops being completely devastated, the herds are gone, and the evil days are upon us, yet... He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. And that now is our theme. It is joy in suffering. Now, as we're coming to the end of our study in Habakkuk, which has said so much about suffering, it seems fitting that the book takes us to the secret of always rejoicing. Now, if you've struggled with the answer to how a good God allows or even ordains and commands suffering, let me warn you this will challenge you further. God commands your joy at all times. But how is that possible? So let me share with you three secrets of how this can be done. The first secret is this. Reorient your thinking. Remember Habakkuk's two great questions. I mean, the first was, God, why are you not doing something about evil? Now the answer to that first question was that God was doing something. He's using evil for his purposes. Even though Satan intends evil for evil, God, because he's sovereign, can use evil for good. And in so doing, he uses evil to punish evil, and he's using evil to direct and shape and discipline and even correct his loved ones. Then comes the second question. God, why do you use a greater, more dark, and more horrible evil to punish a lesser evil? Because, God, when you do that, people will get the wrong idea. They think that at times evil wins the day when in fact it's only a tool in your hand? And the answer came back, I allow great wickedness to have its day so that when it's defeated, the glory and victory and redemption of God will seem all the more sweet and delightful. And so we see God is interested in heightening His glory and our joy to its ultimate level. And so as evil gets more intense, the final destruction of it will be all the more sweet. And so we learned that God, who is righteous, is altogether free to use evil for his own good purposes. Now, you and I might want to carry this dialogue further. And that's not to say that there's not much more to say about this theme, but there comes a time for a dialogue to end. Rather than arguing further, Habakkuk responds with worship. And here's a little tip to reorient our thinking. No joy can take place while you and I proudly project ourselves as equals with God or as advisors to him on how the universe should be run. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you remember how God spoke to Job in Job 40 verses 1 to 2? It says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? I want you to think about that. Do you really think that you can bring God to the bar of justice? Would you find fault in God? And how do we do that? We do it when we say, I'm angry with God. And so why? Did, did God do something wrong like a man or a woman who might offend you? Did he treat you badly? Is he a bad parent? Should he answer to you? When Habakkuk says, oh, Lord, I've heard the report of you, and I was afraid, he's saying that he's come into God's presence and seen him for who he is. You know, every once in a while, I'll hear someone who's really irritated with someone else say something like, who do you think you are, God? So here's a little secret. God actually thinks he's God. That's because he is God. And so Habakkuk is no longer asking God to withdraw his hand and not send the Babylonians. Rather, he's acknowledging that God is perfectly right to do what he wants to do, and whatever God does is absolutely right. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Our troubles can nearly all be traced to our persistence in looking at the immediate problems themselves instead of looking at them in the light of God. If you want to know the secret of rejoicing in God, you'll have to reorient your thinking about God. You'll also have to begin to look at evil and good in a new light, in the light of an utterly glorious, righteous, loving, and sovereign God who uses evil for his own purposes and for the long-term good of his people. And that's what the book of Habakkuk is designed to help us to do.
0: Lorraine wrote, Listening to Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again starts my day off right. It amazes me how God's love reaches into my life daily through these programs. God's word is so precious. I also get a real lift from Laugh Again with Phil. Sometimes I just need that chuckle to help get me through the day. Lorraine, thank you. Your encouragement lets us know lives are being touched and the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are making a difference. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God and the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? With your consistent support as a monthly partner or because of your gift today, the good news is being shared across our nation. To join in the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, call us with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: I've said that if we are to learn the secret of joy, we've got to do three things. First, we've got to reorient our thinking. And second, we need to reflect on God's advancing kingdom. If we've learned anything from Habakkuk, it's surely that God is right in how he's using the nations of the world, even their evil deeds in his own designs. We remember that Habakkuk was written just prior to the invasion of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, and despite constant warnings, the people and leadership of Judah persisted in idolatry and the accompanying sins that flowed from it, which included violence and the perversion of law. We also saw that idolatry was not just a problem in the ancient world. Idolatry, if you'll remember, is making God in our image and then worshiping the God that we've made and then relying on that God for protection and joy. But you'll remember that when our idols fail us, and they always do, we lose our reason for living. Idols will destroy joy. So Habakkuk's question might have been, God, what are you doing about the idolatry in Jerusalem? But we know from this side of history exactly what it is that God was doing. He would end idolatry through the agency of Babylon. And God would, through Babylon, display himself as alone being worthy of worship. You know, the king of the Babylonians was Nebuchadnezzar. And as Nebuchadnezzar became proud of his empire and his accomplishments, God struck him with madness in which he suffered for seven years. Then in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 35, we read, At the end of days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? You know, in short, Nebuchadnezzar was forced through his own tragic circumstances to acknowledge the one true God, and to mock the idols of Babylon. We do know from history that this is not only what Nebuchadnezzar learned, but it's also what the Jews learned from their captivity in Babylon. With Babylonian captivity, idolatry came to an end for the Jews. They came to recognize that God of Israel was not just God over Israel, but he was God over Babylon and Persia and indeed to the whole earth. They stopped looking to the gods of the nations For there was but one God. You see this, they never forgot. Indeed, there can be no doubt that the Babylonian experience forever ended the idolatry of Israel. And that paved the way for the coming of the Messiah. In other words, nothing so served to advance the kingdom of God as the Babylonian invasion into Judah. This evil was used by God for a greater good. And that's precisely the point. God's purpose and plan is furthered in mysterious ways. What seems to be a setback in our eyes are the very means he uses to advance his kingdom. That's always been the case, and it's still the case today. Paul would say that God chose what is foolish, what is weak, what is despised to shame the world. You know, it may be that you and I see that everything is falling apart, but I need to reflect on the fact that God has always used moments of great weakness to advance the kingdom. So if you want joy, then reorient your thinking, reflect on God's ways and how his kingdom has advanced in the past, and then third, submit to God's providence. See, God's lordship over creation meant that he could easily have overthrown the Babylonians with one little word. They would have been annihilated, and that evil would have disappeared, and he could easily have provided plenty instead of scarcity. In fact, that's exactly what God has promised See, Deuteronomy 28, verses 2 to 6 promises, And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. You know, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. See, how easy it is to rejoice in faith when all these things are given, but what should happen if they're being withheld? And what if we live among an evil people and share in the punishment of that evil? What then? Well, years ago, when I taught at a Bible college, I had a, a young student by the name of Brad. Brad was complaining about a pain in his shoulder, and eventually it was discovered that he had a malignant tumor, and that was, it was growing quite rapidly. There were many who anointed him with oil, and they prayed for him to be healed, but he was not. It soon became apparent that this bright and gifted young man was going to die. So I do believe in healing, just like I believe in the blessings and fruitfulness of the bounty on Israel. I also believe that whenever we pray, as James tells us to do, God does indeed provide healing. But I also know that he may, according to his providence, deny our physical healing on this earth, leaving it for eternity for that healing to happen. So I visited Brad on the evening when he died. His mom and dad were in the room, and by then the cancer had made it impossible for him to speak, although he was completely lucid. I asked him if he was afraid, and he nodded. And I read Psalm 23 to him, and I told him that when he went into the valley of the shadow of death, that he shouldn't be surprised if it seemed so very dark, for indeed it was, as the Bible described it, a valley of shadow. But I also told him that he would not enter into that valley alone, that that God had promised to be with him. And when it got very, very dark, I said, then Brad, just stretch out your hand, and you'll find that Christ is there, and he's going to take your hand, and he will graciously lead you through the valley of the shadow of death into his kingdom of light. I told him it would happen just that way, and I remember Brad smiled, and he nodded, and I took the young 21-year-old's hand in mine, and I prayed most earnestly for him that night. And that night, Christ took Brad home. You know, the family then showed me some of the things that Brad had written, and although I wasn't sure whether this was the very last thing that he'd written, it was very close to the very last thing he'd written. He had simply written out by hand Habakkuk three seventeen to 18, "'Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation.'" You know, since that time, I've never been able to read those two verses without thinking about Brad. Should not a 21-year-old have said, my life's taken away by the evil of cancer, and people have prayed for my healing, and God didn't answer? Brad could have spent his last days raging against the great evil called cancer. Instead, he wrote, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, you might argue that such joy is surely a gift from God, that no human explanation could possibly account for it, and that's true. But while I acknowledge that, I would also argue that more can be said. There's something that we can do that makes it possible to survive in the day of evil. That is, we can prepare, and in this preparation, although it's graciously given by God, still we participate in it, and it makes it possible to rejoice in the day of evil. So let me explain. Verse 19 says, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So I want you to imagine one of those mountain goats that we see in pictures. They seem to climb on some very impossible ledges. So I'm told that they will easily climb a 60-degree pitch. But how do they hold on on those high levels on those impossible cliffs? Now, part of the reason they can do this is that they have inner pads in their hooves that provide traction that their hoofs can be spread quite far apart and that the front of their hoofs are quite sharp and dig in to keep them from slipping. In short, God provides them with all the tools in their feet to make them very strong and confident in places where any man or animal would quickly slip away. God has made provision for them to walk in very difficult places. That's how they do it. Now, Habakkuk testifies to the same thing. God has equipped him to walk with strength on rocky and dangerous ground. But what is this equipment? And the answer, the equipment is God himself. God is his strength. That's how he can do this. I wonder if you remember the time when David's men were so disillusioned with him that they spoke of stoning him to death. It came very close to it, and David could have lost all confidence— But the Bible, in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, simply says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. When other men would have wilted and failed, David got strong. But how how shall we understand strengthening ourselves in God? Well, that's the entire point of Habakkuk chapter 3. Once we see a vision of our God for who he is, not our idolatrous notions of God, it is then that we gain strength. Take confidence in the Lord. That's your key to joy.
0: John, I was struck by something you said earlier on where you said, we assume that all suffering is bad. And I guess we do make that assumption, but suffering has much more to do than just that, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, suffering is not the end. In fact, for the believer, we recognize that it may be the pathway for something to happen in our lives or in the world around us that would not be accomplished any other way. And so, I think the believer has to live, as Habakkuk says, by faith. We've got to trust in God's hand as we walk through the valley. Or as Habakkuk says so well, when the when the olive tree fails and and, you know, the fields yield no food. I mean, when those times of barrenness come... I th- Trust has got to be the issue that we say, God, I just believe that you have greater and wider purposes in mind.
0: Thanks so much, John. Join us again tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. From February 7th through the 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Carousel, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirmed special friends and musicians, Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged. You'll laugh and be encouraged and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca, laughagain.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.